Alrighty, everyone, welcome back. We've got the Basin Breakdown for the month of April. It's myself, Tavis, and today I'm joined by Kevin Olson. Hey, guys, how you doing? Uh, this is my first podcast, so if it's not great, uh, blame Tavis. He convinced me to he convinced me to join today. Yeah, I'm a great scapegoat, but yeah, Sai, he's moving on, and uh, he'll not be recording with us anymore, so you'll see a lot more Kevin, a lot more Gunner, which I think you've met in a podcast before. So in honor of Sai, today we will be starting with his favorite segment, California. All right. California oil producers are fighting Governor Newsom's proposal for stronger industry oversight. Essentially, the California producers want the administration to significantly scale back the governor's proposal to increase staff at the agency that oversees oil drilling. Um, Newsom's 2020 to 2021 state budget proposed adding 128 analysts, engineers, and geologists to CalGEMS over the next three years. Basically, this is going to force operators to pay $24 million to expand um, the existing employees. You know, what are your thoughts on that, Tavis? I think it's hard. There's a lot of push and pull in California. You know, they want less regulation, but then they also want stuff to move forward. So I think more employees is going to be useful because he doesn't have his top oil and gas advisor. He fired him. Not a lot of business has been pushed through since the end of last year. Uh, it's tough to find a balance, but I think making the industry pay for it in the form of $24 million of taxes, I personally don't agree with that. What are your thoughts on the fact that it's going to bring in, you know, 128 new employees, seeing that over 3 million Californians have implied for unemployment benefits since, you know, the start of this whole coronavirus pandemic? What, just in the sense that we keep drawing on more and more resources and we really don't have the place uh, to employ people? Good point. Is that where you're coming from? Because no, I, I, I was more thinking that, you know, it, it might be a good thing, you know, bringing more people into oil and gas. You know, I know California is very much against oil and gas. You know, if we bring people that might not have been in the industry before, you know, uh, more supporters to the industry, you know, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe things can start turning around in California instead of everyone being so anti-oil and gas. Maybe this could help to usher in, you know, a new age down in California. I didn't even take that perspective. I was just so pessimistic with it. I didn't expect anything good to come out of it. So maybe that's a good thing, you know, a, a new perspective here on our new podcaster. Like I kind of already dipped my toes into, and something we've talked about before, California really has not seen a lot of progress with fracking, but finally they're issuing the first new permits since July of last year. California issued 24 hydraulic fracturing permits last week, authorizing the first new oil wells in the state since July of last year, and really pissed off some environmental groups who've been pressuring the state to ban the procedure. California halted all fracking permits last year after Gavin Newsom fired the state's top oil and gas regulator, after reports showed new wells increased 35%, which angered a lot of his constituents, and he fired, I think that was the second regulator that he had fired, for that position. In November, CalGEM asked for an independent scientific review of its permitting process to make sure that the state was meeting standards for public health, safety, and environmental protection, which really slowed pretty much all development in that division. And the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory completed that review, and last week, the state issued 24 permits to Era Energy for wells in the North Bell Ridge and South Bell Ridge fields in Kern County near Bakersfield which still has 282 fracking permits awaiting review. So it's a step in the right direction, but 24 of 282. 
hey, kind of like you said, it's a step in the right direction, but it's, it's definitely going to take some time before, you know, the, you know, state agencies finally get through all these permits. But um, kind of like we talked about in our last segment, you know, maybe this is a step in the right direction, you know, uh, turning over a new leaf. Um, interesting enough, I actually worked down in California in some of these fields a few years ago, uh, probably more than that now, probably four or five years ago. But I remember right during this time is when they started banning fracking down in California. So um, I just remember the headaches that that caused down there. So I think kind of like you said, this this is a this is a step in the right direction. But twenty four two eighty two, let's get things picked up a little bit here. Definitely, and I think that wraps up what we've got for California. Slightly more positive this month. All right, and let's take it on east down to Texas and talk about the Eagleford play. So Gravity, a leading water and energy infrastructure company backed by affiliates of Clear Lake Capital Group, announced just this week that it is offering its inventory of crude oil storage tanks to operators in the Permian, Haynesville, and Eagleford. Gravity, one of the largest providers of mobile fluid containers in the United States, has ample supply available for immediate delivery. Mike Sledge, vice president of sales at Gravity, said, In this unprecedented environment, we would like to help operators in any way we can. In the past weeks, we have set more than 1,000 tanks to address operators' immediate storage needs, and we are now ready to dispatch more than 4,000 tanks as quickly as needed. Well, I think this is awesome. What do you think? How long is it going to take for these guys to fill up? Not a whole lot of time, but fortunately for them, they'll probably make some money out of it. Yeah, might as well make a premium on this. You know, storage has been in the news. I know we've talked about it time and time again. It's it's what's plaguing our industry right now. It's why prices have been so low. It's 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 something that, you know, these guys are going to help these operators down in the Eagleford out with, but kind of like you said, they're going to make a premium on it. Right. I'd, I'd like to think that it's just in the good nature of their hearts, but I know for sure it's definitely not going to be free. Hey, I think they're doing it all for the right reasons, you know, helping people out, but also, you know, you got to scratch your own back from time yeah, to time. Everyone too. wins. Everyone yeah. wins. But a little bit less positive. Halliburton closes two locations in Texas and lays off another 240 employees in Oklahoma. This is back in April again, but Houston oil field service giant Halliburton closed two service centers in Texas and laid off another 240 employees in Oklahoma as record low oil prices continue to cut demand for the company's products and services. This came fresh off that negative $35 pricing that really devastated the industry, and this was their response. The company is also closing its East Texas service centers in Kilgore and relocating operations to its field office in Louisiana to better serve Haynesville shale customers in both states. Layoff numbers at the two Texas locations were not immediately available to the public, but it shows that they laid off about 240 employees in Duncan, Oklahoma, and the company previously laid off 350 employees from the same location three weeks earlier. And that was just when they told them, everybody, go home. There weren't a lot left, and it sounds like there's even fewer. So Halliburton, I mean, their biggest way to save money, what we've seen in the past few months, has been, unfortunately, to cut the labor. How much longer do you think they can realistically do that before their workforce is tiny? Well, the problem is I, I understand that people aren't fracking, people aren't doing cement jobs, acid jobs, you know, uh, any kind of remedial work. I, I understand that operators, you know, in it, not just the Eagleford, all around the United States aren't doing that kind of work because they just don't have the capital to spend right now with such depressed oil prices. 
But the thing that I keep seeing time and time again when you see all these service companies laying more people off is what's going to happen when, you know, prices rebound and someone comes to Halberton and says, hey, you know, I need, you know, these next 16 wells fracked ASAP. What's Halliburton going to say? They don't have the crews. They don't have the personnel. They're not going to be able to jump right on this. So it's, it's, it's almost, you know, kind of a, a dire situation for, for both parties. So there's a fine line between saving money and being ready for things to get better. Exactly. And, and I'm no expert and I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you that, you know, they need to keep their employees on, but without any work, what are they really going to be working on? So I, I understand why they're, you know, laying people off and, and making cuts. I just am nervous for the industry as a whole when things start to pick back up and no one's able to do this work and our, you know, domestic production is going to be quite depressed for some time without any kind of remedial work. Do you think they're trying to move to other projects? Because they're closing facilities completely. I know there was, I think, one in Oklahoma, now two in Texas. Are they just trying to condense into one play and play it safe? Or, Well, luckily, I've got some roommates that work for Halliburton, so I've got a little bit of you know inside information that is public, so I'm not releasing any kind of secrets, but um, it, it sounds like they're just trying to condense locations, not necessarily get rid of them, you know, move personnel to more remote locations. And obviously they're still going to have crews and field offices, you know, local, you know, they're not going to send, you know, a group from the Eagleford up to do some jobs in the DJ, but it sounds like a lot of their, you know, headquarter jobs or more office based work is going to just be more consolidated to precise locations. Fantastic. Well, Hopefully it works out for them. And uh, let's keep it in Texas and move on over to Permian. But with the Permian, there's not a whole lot of news. We try to find something unique and interesting that isn't just coronavirus. Demand is low. We try to keep you on your toes and something fun. So right now, the only thing we really have to report is how big oil, you know, the majors, are buying up a lot of the smaller plays that other people are abandoning. Just because the U.S. oil industry has hit a rough patch doesn't mean that West Texas shale is completely played out. In fact, it stands to reason that as competition dries up from the mid to low cap companies and bows away like so many tumbleweeds, big oil may step in and buy up faltering shale independence. See, I find this pretty interesting because, you know, think back on, you know, years and years ago, antitrust laws, monopoly laws. Do you think that that's going to be an issue in the ensuing? It probably won't be months. I, I bet it'll be years if at all, before big oil really buys out all these other operators. And to be honest with you, people are predicting that, you know, the major five throughout the world are going to be ruling the oil and gas industry. I don't see that as a possibility. I think there's still going to be smaller companies. And by smaller, I do mean, you know, guys like you know, Noble or PDC, which aren't really that Not small. Tiny. Yeah, <laughs> I just... Not and pop, but... There you go. I, I, just, I just don't see big oil totally running the show entirely. And if they do, I think that's when the government's going to step in and, and make sure that, all right, this isn't going to last very long. No, I definitely agree with that. I think this is an aggressive strategy, and they've got the pockets that are deep enough to where they can stomach these costs. But... Yeah, some people are going to go under, but I'm thinking by the time we get through this and there is a demand, some new people will come back up. So, Well, interestingly enough, you said they have deep enough pockets to maybe pull off these purchases, but you know, what if they overstep? What if they get too far in debt? Then 
who knows, maybe big oil's in trouble. And then when does the government step in? Are they going to help out big oil? Well, Are they going to help out the out guys? Oil. Bingo. So interesting times. We'll just have to wait and see, and uh, we'll keep you guys updated. But that is it for Texas. Casillas Petroleum Resource Partners sued their rival, Continental Resources, in Oklahoma, alleging that the shale producer backed out of a $200 million oil and gas deal as prices crashed. On March 6th, the day the supply pact by OPEC and allies collapsed, Continental agreed to buy oil and gas properties from Tulsa, Oklahoma-based Casillas. The deal was set to close roughly three weeks later, according to a lawsuit filed in the Tulsa County District Court. But Continental got cold feet and postponed the deal, citing title and other problems. I mean, I can't really blame these guys, you know, with the the state of the industry, especially, you know, right around March, you know, coronavirus things are starting to really wind up. Prices are tanking, you know, the OPEC deal collapsed. I don't really blame these guys, but I, I, I do feel for the for the little guy, this Casillas over here. Uh, seeing as how you know they got kind of snubbed on a on a pretty impressive deal. Oh, definitely. And I'm no lawyer, of course, so I don't know if it was a contract, but I can't really blame Continental. Like you said, if it's not profitable, why make that decision? Why would I choose to do that? Yeah, I mean, Continental said that they postponed the deal due to changes in the oil and gas markets and then obviously eventually terminated it. But in times like these, you know, you got to save yourself. You can't just always be looking out for the other guy Mm, there's just there's too much uncertainty right now but fortunately for the state there's some good news and some states across the united states uh oklahoma oil producers do win the right to keep leases while wells are shut oklahoma governor kevin stitt is asking president trump to declare the coronavirus as an act of god in order to secure aid from the for the oil and gas industry Crude oil prices, you know, collapsed last month, and Sit said in his letter, many operators desire to voluntarily reduce or cease producing on a temporary basis without fear of parties taking advantage of an opportunity to cancel their leases, since many people are opting to shut in or choke on production. So, well, because they don't have anywhere to put it, like we've mentioned. Other states are starting to take after this as well, allowing oil and gas producers with money-losing wells to retain the leases that would otherwise be voided because a lot of the agreements say if you aren't producing for X amount of time, your lease is voided and you are not allowed to operate on that land. But a lot of people are starting to understand, landowners, lease owners, that it's not profitable. There's no place to store it. So fortunately, people are helping out. I love this decision by Oklahoma. I've said this since the start of everything, you know, when we realized that storage was going to be an issue. Um, I said, you know, operators need to shut in their wells, but I understand that it's expensive to bring a well back online. That's something that when, you know, when you're reading stories, you know, Wall Street Journal, oilnews.com, anything like that, a lot of sources will tell you that it's very expensive to shut the well in. That's not necessarily the case. It's typically more expensive to bring the wells back online. But, you know, if you've got nowhere for oil to go and you're paying someone to take your oil regardless, why not shut it in? Why not keep that money in your pocket and use those costs to, you know, bring production back online? And, you know, this is something we discussed earlier. Maybe not totally shut it in, maybe just choke it down a little bit. A lot of these leases are held by production. Not if it's on or off, just you have to reach a certain amount of production 
per month, per year. It depends on the lease. So choke back production a little bit, still able to keep the leases. I just, I love this move by Oklahoma. Yeah, it's fantastic. It'll let people ride out the virus. But next, let's move on over to the Powder River Basin. So up in Wyoming here in the Powder River Basin, you know, Wyoming is, you know, really struggling with, you know, these OPEC deals. So although the OPEC plus deal to cut back production has been mostly beneficial, you know, as we've seen time and time again, it might be a little too little too late. Until the pandemic is resolved, there's no way to stimulate enough demand for the small producers in Wyoming to survive. According to Ryan McNaughton, communications director for the Petroleum Association of Wyoming, Every dollar the price of oil loses, the state sustains an annual loss of $12.5 million. So in the past month where we've seen oil drop $40, that's $500 million in annual losses for the state. And for every Wyoming rig shut down, roughly 100 workers are displaced. And since February, the rig count has fallen from 20 to 10 at the time of this report. That's over 1,000 employees associated with those jobs right off the bat it's not looking great for wyoming right now no it's not but hopefully the silver lining to this is that the states that are these heavy producers you know wyoming colorado north dakota texas i'm sure they recognize how important it is but i'm sure everyone regardless of where they stand will recognize how much money it brings in when you're losing half a billion dollars a year from this industry so hopefully there's some assistance it looks like i mean they're already letting people honor their lease agreements, but I don't know. I'm hoping more help comes in once politicians see how much money they're losing. Oh, yeah. I, I don't even think it's going to be an issue of once politicians see the m- amount of money they're losing. I mean, Wyoming has always been uh, very much in, you know, an energy strong, energy united state where, you know, a lot of regulations and policies are based on the oil and gas industry because it's it what fuels, you know, the Wyoming economy. There's not a whole lot of you know travel up there there's not a whole lot of infrastructure up there it's it's large a large portion of their economy is based on oil and gas so i i really think that you know this is pandemic time is really going to bring the state together and and force people to figure out you know how are we going to get through this let's work together not only has wyoming been struggling with its own prices and employment but wyoming is also struggling to reach an international market The Powder River Basin is home to massive gas reserves, which have been exploited for a while, but lack the advantage of being close to seaports like the Marcellus Basin. Being able to take advantage of seaports means an international market can be accessed, something the landlocked Powder River Basin has dreamed of for years. Last month, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission gave the go-ahead for a 229-mile pipeline and corresponding LNG export terminal in Coos Bay, Oregon. This is big news for Wyoming specifically as access to the pipeline correlates to access to Asian markets. This project has been battling obstacles for over a decade, but the recent approval means that Wyoming will still be able to compete with gas producers that have easier access to international markets, much like Marcellus. I mean, Pennsylvania exports a lot of LNG to Japan, so good on Wyoming. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, kind of like you were saying earlier, you know, a silver lining to all this, you know, a, a bright future ahead. Granted... I get the feeling that this project's going to be pushed back a little bit and it's going to take years to complete, but at the very least, you know, it's it's a step in the right direction. You know, it's it's a problem that, you know, has been identified and and they found a solution. A, a very much, you know, engineering mindset. I I think it's great. 
Definitely. And I agree with 10 years of delays already. And especially right now, it's another year or two of nothing happening. Absolutely. But hey, kind of like you said, good things in the future. On another note, the Wyoming Department of Environmental Quality, or DEQ, began working to accommodate operators who were struggling to not be in compliance with the state. While the DEQ has emphasized that COVID-19 is not an excuse to be in non-compliance, they wanted to provide a program that will work to provide relief. The aim is to excuse operators in the case where a lab technician is not available to send water samples or an employee is not available to log and submit production data to the state. Entities are still expected to make efforts to be in compliance with all regulations, but there is now increased flexibility in dealing with violations, missed deadlines, and consequences. Again, I think Wyoming is absolutely just crushing it in regards of regulation because they realize the industry is struggling. They realize things are going to be delayed. They realize that employees have to be laid off. So if you're going to be slightly delayed in sending in a water sample to be in compliance, you know, why not kind of give them the flexibility, whereas hitting them with, you know, a stop work order or a fine or something like that, which could put them in an even worse situation. Oh, yeah. A little bit of leniency is definitely going to go a long way. So good on Wyoming for that. Heading up north to the Marcellus Basin. So Marcellus may be poised for a comeback. Now, this might be a little early to tell, but while declining oil prices have impacted most everyone negatively, gas producers who have kept their costs low may be at an advantageous position in the near future. Since oil production has been declining, that means associated gas production is declining as well. According to the director of North American Upstream Research for IHS Market, every 500,000 barrels per day of production decline correlates to an associated gas decline of 1 billion standard cubic feet per day. This means that producers in the Marcellus may benefit from improved natural gas and NGL pricing as production costs are rather low comparatively. Now, Electricity and power demand are down due to lockdowns, but not as much as you would think. You know, with people staying home, they've got, you know, their TVs on, internet on, you know, they're constantly heating or cooling their house. So residential consumption is up a little bit while commercial consumption is down. You know, people aren't in offices, but they still have that thing. It's called vampire power running right now, which essentially is just. Um, the bare essentials need to be kept on, you know, security systems, et cetera, et cetera. What this means is residential consumption is up with people staying home, watching TV, air conditioning, heating on, et cetera. But commercial consumption is way down, which is going to lead to an overall dip in demand. As we talked about earlier, you know, this supply is going to be down even more. Associated gas production, low gas prices, Simple economics tells us that supply and demand will force prices to rally to bring supply and demand back in balance. What this means is, is it potential for a rally in natural gas prices? Who knows? Only only time will tell. Yeah, and you're kind of a little bit of expert on this because you did write a periodical pretty recently, right? I, I did. So, in fact, definitely head over to our website and check that out. Um, it's got a lot of great information on, you know, this this gas situation where gas appears to be poised for a comeback quite a bit sooner than oil. Yeah, go ahead and give that a read. And again, that's rarepetro.com. But next, a little bit less good news. Abandoned oil and gas wells could be Pennsylvania's next big problem. 
So the oil and gas industry is no stranger to Pennsylvania, but the rich history of development has left about 200,000 orphaned oil and gas wells in the state, some dating back to before there were abandonment regulations. Each abandoned well does hold the potential to channel volatile hydrocarbons to the surface and pollute nearby ecosystems. The Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection is struggling to catch up to the work laid out for them. In one year, they receive about $1 million to fund the work, which only seals about, well, a little less than a dozen wells per year. Current commodity prices loom over the DEP as it holds potential for economic fallout for many companies, leaving the possibility of hundreds of more orphan wells to spring up in the next few years. So it's already difficult. Uh, Pennsylvania taxes pretty heavily on their operators, and a lot of people are deciding that it's no longer worth it for them to produce, especially with low gas prices. So there's going to be a lot to clean up, and I'm not exactly sure where the money's coming from. Well, kind of like we talked about previously, you know, maybe a rally in gas prices are going to help out with taxes to help out with some of these orphan wells. But um, I kind of have to agree with you. I, I don't really know where the funding for this is going to come from, but um, I I wouldn't say that it's a dire situation as of yet. I know that there are hundreds of thousands of orphaned wells all throughout the country. Um most of them aren't problematic. I'm not going to say all of them aren't because obviously you're going to have a 2017 Firestone situation. Yeah, there's there's always that black sheep in there. So, um, but for the most part, a lot of these aren't um, in fear of you know blowing someone's house up. You know, a lot of these are kind of out in the middle of nowhere, not really in people's backyards. But I do agree with you. Uh, it does seem like. A little bit of an issue, but not a dire situation. Yeah, maybe it's not bad that it's a dozen per year. Maybe they can target a dozen of what they consider to be the most problematic sites and target those. Because I, like you said, I doubt all 200,000 are just waiting to blow. But keeping it in terms of gas, let's pop on over to the Bakken, where desperate times call for, well, old measures. North Dakota is considering production caps, a strategy that has not been implemented since the 1950s when oil was first discovered in the state. Although it is something the state would prefer not to see, and I would wager operators as well, it could be a valid solution if all else fails. So far, North Dakota Oil and Gas Division revived a waiver policy allowing wells to be idled for longer than a year before they start producing or are permanently abandoned. In addition, it is now acceptable to shut in wells without breaking a state lease, much like we talked with in the case of Wyoming. This increased flexibility has proved useful for many operators as more pursue the strategy of slowing or halting production altogether to get through this glut. But I imagine there's going to be probably a little bit of pushback depending on where this cap lies, although it's probably the right way to go. Absolutely. I mean, operators are probably not going to be super happy if, you know, the government comes in and tells them exactly how much they can and can't produce, but they might be pretty happy with the policy allowing them to idle a well for a year or longer, you know, Maybe they've got a, a parted rod or a bad ESP that if they can hold off for a year in such depressed environments to go in and fix, heck, I mean, might as well just take that time to focus on your other core assets. Definitely. I mean, with these policies, I guess you do win some, you do lose some, but I would argue that this is better than nothing. So speaking of which, so there is a downside to shutting wells in. Although North Dakota is doing its best to work with operators to develop solutions that will allow them to survive through the COVID pandemic, shutting in wells could prove more dangerous in the future. Although it will prevent operators from selling oil at price points that are uneconomic, bringing a well back online in order to produce once again runs the risk of costing an operator around $50,000 or more. 
In case prices do not rebound in the way that everyone desires, the state held an emergency meeting that discussed all possible options to support the industry, even using federal stimulus money or tax breaks for operators. You know, we talked about this a little bit before, and it's it's a win-lose situation. You know, if you shut in a well, you're you know, not necessarily losing money on the oil that you're pumping, but you might not be generating that cash flow, and it it sounds like wells up in North Dakota can cost operators fifty thousand dollars to bring back online. That's it's a pretty insane number there. And do you think that's? I mean, I obviously I just graduated. I don't have much industry experience, but is that more recompleting it or reperfing or just trying to re-stimulate that well? Is that worst case scenario? I definitely think that that's more of a worst case scenario. More having a uh, kind of field engineering background myself, um, I get the feeling that this might be you know going in, removing some scale damage, whether that be in the wellbore, in the tubing, you know, sometimes even in the pipelines, you know, that can be a big issue. It also might be an issue of, you know, on-site equipment. You know, do they have to change out their lift equipment? Do they have to change out chokes, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, that $50,000, you know, it, it does seem like a steep price point, but in regards to oil and gas, it's, it's not huge, but it's definitely a cost that if you can avoid it, obviously try to. And taking it right back home, we're going to talk about the DJ here in Colorado. Recently, the COGCC levied its largest ever penalty for the Firestone explosion. I'm sure as most of you remember, back in 2017, the Firestone explosion was a small disaster caused by odorless leaking gas that had seeped into the foundation of a home from a severed gas line. Once ignited, the house was lifted off the foundation and caught on fire, resulting in two fatalities. The COGCC finalized the hearing and approved an $18.25 million penalty against the Occidental subsidiary responsible. This penalty is over 11 times larger than any other penalty levied by the COGCC to date. The explosion was a result of flow lines that had been improperly abandoned and then put back into use before the home was constructed on top of these lines. This incident has spurred lots of change within the Colorado oil and gas industry, including publicly available mapping of all oil and gas operations in Colorado. Now, I know that this was a disaster. It was a fatality. But, you know, if we look on the bright side, it it did spark some, you know, beneficial changes in the industry and... Um, kind of what are your thoughts on this? No, definitely. It's it's a shame that it happened, but we're trying to make the most of it. We've got the interactive map, which is actually pretty incredible if you get the chance to check it out. But it's it's something that we need to learn from. It's not something we can move on, bury, scoop under the rug. It's definitely something that I feel the state and the industry is trying to grow from. We're now properly trying to abandon these sites. There's people inspecting these lines, and really, this doesn't happen frequently. It's a shame that it happened at all, but... Considering the amount of wells that are serviced, I'd say it's a decent track record, which is hard to say when there were fatalities involved. I'm trying to find the silver lining. No, absolutely. And, and shockingly, you know, only an $18.25 million penalty. I know that that's a big number, but two fatalities, that, that doesn't seem like a whole lot. Not at all. Not at all. And also, some other strange wacky news. I don't normally include stuff like this. Uh, the news team doesn't report on it, but since it's kind of hitting close to home... There is a man that is shooting, well, shot at Well County service workers. A man from Brighton is suspected of randomly firing on workers at an oil and gas site. The Well County Sheriff's Office is actively searching for 31-year-old Tyler James Van Auken. 
Investigators say someone fired shots from a moving car on Monday afternoon near Well County Road 6 and 29 north of Brighton. Our investigators have spoken to Van Auken on the phone, but he is not yet cooperating, Joe Moylan, public information officer for the Well County Sheriff's Office, told CBS4. The investigations unit is actively searching for Van Auken as he is believed to be hiding out somewhere in the Denver metro area. Anyone with information about the suspect or Monday shooting is asked to call either Detective Anthony Simmons or Investigation Investigation Sergeant Aaron Walker. You can definitely go to the internet to find their information, but that's that's something I wanted to throw in there because I that kind of upsets me. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I realize that people have more time on their hands than they typically do, but really going out and shooting at workers, it's a little little out there definitely but i i do really like the part where the investigators have him on the phone and they say yeah turn yourself in and he says no <laughs> um i i can't really blame the guy though um who wants to turn themselves in but yeah. really if you if you know anything about this please give some information to the police because uh service workers don't deserve this no one in any industry just no person regardless of what they do deserves to get fired at randomly but that's all we've got for Colorado. Thanks again, Kevin, for being on your first episode. I think you nailed it. Oh, right on. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping this one turns out. I will see what I can do in editing. I'm sure I could prop you up real good. But thanks again, everybody. And until next time, take care. <laughs>